Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPs and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these podcasts are meant for general medical education, not to diagnose that thing on your eye. So this week, we're doing our second episode in our Eyes for Ears chat series, where we bring on a special unique guest and talk to them about life and what advice they may have for the trainees listening to this program. And we've just been talking with our attending at Yale, Dr. Paul Gaudio, who's based out of Hartford, Connecticut. And we were just picking his brain for his usual 20-point uh, exam skills that you'll find in a separate episode in our Buddy Call series for those just starting their residencies in ophthalmology. But Dr. Gaudio has also had a very interesting career. He did his medical internship at the University of Colorado and is also an alumni of our own residency program in ophthalmology at the Yale University. Dr. Gaudio then did a fellowship in uveitis, cornea, and external eye disease at the University of California, San Francisco. And since then, Dr. Gaudio has been in private practice in Hartford, Connecticut, and has also been a clinical associate professor teaching at Yale and teaching us, and was one of our most wonderful, excellent teachers. We're glad to have him on. So we very much appreciate your time, Dr. Gaudio, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. So can you tell us a bit about the, your training process and what brought you to ophthalmology? When I was a medical student, I had a tropical disease fellowship between my second and third years. Uh, I was working on the diarrhea vaccine program, and I ended up working with a group in Thailand where I lived for a year that put me very much on the infectious disease track. So when I got back in my third and early in my fourth year of medical school, I assumed I was going into medicine to do, uh, to do uh, infectious disease. At a certain point, I got a little disenchanted with medicine and sort of flogging patients in the ICU and whatnot. I had grown up in the house of an ophthalmologist, which initially just made me assume, made me assume that I would never do it. But at least at that point, I knew what it was. And I thought at a certain point, the eyes are the most vital of the functions. In other words, if you have three weeks left to live, you still want to be able to see. That kind of brought me into it. You never have to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing by treating this patient to try to save what I can of their vision? Which wasn't something I was, the sort of analogous question I was not always comfortable with in internal medicine. So I decided to go into ophthalmology. Once I was in ophthalmology, I still had this sort of infection bent about me and it was basically a senior resident at the time who said, if you're really into infectious disease and you like inflammation, you're going to want to do surface disease and uveitis. It was one of those off-the-cuff remarks at a journal club at an attending's house that set me just on a different path in life. I'm still grateful to her for it, and I indeed went into ocular surface disease and uveitis. That's how I kind of got into this. That's awesome. Yeah. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about your work um, in Thailand? From what we understand, after that tropical disease fellowship, you still went back and did some work there. What have you done? So after living in Thailand for a year, I made some contacts in the ophthalmology community there and was able to uh, make a few more as I went along. At a certain point, one of them said, this would be a great opportunity for you after you finish your fellowship, if you ever want to come here. I was able to speak the language so... Um, I had an opportunity to go work in an eye hospital. So early in my fellowship at, at the Proctor Foundation at UCSF, I decided my first job out of fellowship should probably be over there as a way to get a lot of experience deep and basically waist deep in ocular infection and inflammation. 
So I made contact with an eye hospital, a place called Metaprasharak Hospital, or also known as Wat Rai King Hospital, which was a hospital in Thailand that was founded by a Buddhist temple that had amassed a lot of money. And rather than build sort of the world's biggest Buddha, which was a very common way to handle a lot of money in a temple over there, this very forward-thinking abbot built a hospital. The most flourishing department in the hospital was the eye department, and I went to work there right out of fellowship. It was a great experience in multiple regards. First of all, eye infections and people with uh, uveitis were at an advanced stage who really needed someone to take care of them were extremely numerous over there. It's also the case that the director of the hospital had made uh, an international reputation as a teacher of phaco emulsification. Phaco was already pretty much the standard in Thailand at the time, but not quite to the point where everybody was comfortable doing it. So we actually had people coming to learn phaco emulsification from all over Southeast Asia. Because I could speak English, I was often sort of tasked with with getting involved with them and became fairly facile and received instruction on how to school people on how you do a FACO. That kind of got me into the teaching mode of teaching people how to operate. And so when I came back after a little more than a year, I had become very comfortable in a variety of surgical techniques and uh, as well as how to teach FACO and most importantly, how to be very comfortable dealing with patients with very advanced um, ocular infection and inflammatory conditions. And we definitely benefit from that teaching experience you received there. It's obvious to us how much you enjoy teaching as well. And we were wondering what perspective or advice might you have for how to become a good and hopefully better educator one day for those of us hoping to pursue teaching in the future too. Some of it is, I mean, I have to say, I was giving away cases as a third year resident. So there are some people who are just comfortable turning and giving cases away and, 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 and um, passing knowledge on from an early age. You need to be comfortable enough in what it is you're trying to teach. And then I think a key to teaching is to recognize that in medicine, it still is the case. And I don't, I don't know if I can read the future, but it's hard to imagine it changing from being the case that teaching at this level, this sort of skill has to address the individual needs of every student. And so residents are taught one by one. In surgery, it's me and a resident. Each resident is slightly different, and in a big part of the first couple sessions in surgery is to assess what is this particular resident good at, what is this particular resident uh, weak at, and address those particular needs. Every person learning surgery has to be calm, and so anything in surgery that makes your resident, uh, or <laughs> at, ever, and at any level, makes them nervous will work against you, and you'll just be pedaling upstream the whole time. So the resident has to be calm. There has to be a clear sense of security, like no matter what happens, someone can sit in, can step in and save this. In general, I think surgery is best learned fragments at a time. So a resident who does half of a capsular rexus well on three cases will complete the day much better off than someone who was given a whole case and flailed through it and ended up with a blood pressure through the roof with their hands shaking. There's a lot that goes into watching what the needs of a resident are, any trainee are, but keeping calm and small steps that are successful are much more useful than large 
steps that are sort of flailing. Not sure if I've answered your question. Yeah, that, that's great. You, you did answer that and uh, definitely gave me some insight on how my emotions were being managed this year in the operating room. <laughs> so thank you so much for keeping me calm and level-headed as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, kind of leading off of that, for the actual resident or starting uh, introductory surgeons, we know that you can't teach all the small tips that you are so good at um, sharing with us in the operating room. But do you have any general principles for the intro surgeon? I guess the presumption is we're talking about cataract surgery specifically, right? Well, I mean, you know, whatever mm-hmm. kind of surgery. Sure. Doing, yeah. Okay. Most, most resonant surgery that we talk about is cataract surgery. It is the one that is the most um, anxiety producing. It is the one that has the longest learning curve. It is the one where you can do the most damage very quickly at the resonant level. The a couple of things are true when you sit down, when you start operating, and things I hope are true of all residents. I often try to meet residents in the cafeteria the first day of surgery because point number one is do not be hungry or thirsty going into surgery. You have to have your mind in the right place, and you can't do that if you've rushed in and you haven't eaten. Do not be hungry. Do not be thirsty. Make sure you've used the bathroom. Your body has to be comfortable. Following on that, oh, and by the way, Drink, if you normally drink coffee, drink it. Don't do anything different along those lines. If it makes you shake, it's worth it. Don't worry about it. The next thing is, remember that position means a lot in surgery. So I have people either, I like to wear those those five-finger shoes in the OR. Be barefoot or have socks on so that you can feel the pedals. Remember that position means a lot. You have to be in a comfortable position that you're sitting in. You can't be leaning on one side. If your stool is uncomfortable, fix it. If your gown is uncomfortable, fix it. Your back needs to be straight. And a lot of fatigue and shakes and problems that happen in the OR happen because a person is uncomfortable. So make sure you're seated in a comfortable position. You look at the microscope before you sit down at it and make sure that the eyepieces and the angle is uh, appropriate to your, to your body. You want to be looking more or less straight ahead, so you don't want to have a downward tilt of your of your neck. That'll catch up to you eventually. You also don't want to have your chin jutted out in front of you. You want to be looking pretty much straight ahead. Then your arms, when you operate and hold instruments, you want the top of your forearm to be pretty much a straight line. So if you if you hold up your arm with your palm down, you should have a straight line from your forearm past your wrist and onto your hands. That line should be more or less straight. If your wrist is f- flexed, uh, if your wrist is flexed a little bit, that's okay. You can probably flex the wrist easily about forty-five degrees without having any problems. You do not want an extended wrist. Wrist. So if you're pulling your wrist back, you will get a shake. Remember that in the operating room there are two types of shakes you will have at the microscope. One is the nervous shake. Those will go away. Everybody has a nervous shake. I still sometimes have a nervous shake. A lot of caffeine, I say drink coffee if you normally drink it. I wouldn't have an extra cup because you're going in surgery because all it will do will make you a little more prone to get a shake. But the nervous shake will go away. And so I'm operating with a resident. Everybody will have a nervous shake. I just ignore it. Just ignore your own shake and work past it. I've never seen a shake get in the way of, you know, of a result. It just slows you down a little bit. And don't let your own shake make you more nervous. Just understand, yeah, it's a nervous shake. It'll go away. Everybody has them. Your attending has them, whether he or she admits it or not. Work past a nervous shake. But make sure you don't have a positional shake. Those get worse throughout the case. And why? what are common reasons for a positional shake? You're pulling your wrist back. You are extending your wrist. 
wrist, you can't do that for very long without getting a shake. The other is you're holding your, your shoulders are too high. People tend to have their shoulders really, really in a tense position. Make sure your spine is straight, your shoulders are relaxed and, and not hunched over, but also not pulled too far back. You don't want to be operating with these scrunched up, tightened shoulders. You want your body and your arm musculature to be relaxed. That will stop you from getting a positional shake so that you'll have more endurance. People who find, oh, I'm so tired at the end of three cases, it's because they were tense during the case. You should be able to do pretty much innumerable cases, or at least you should be able to do four or five cases where all the energy you're consuming is mental, not physical. You know, th- that wasn't a selfish question at all. I'm definitely <laughs> we all appreciate, though, those uh, those awesome tips. Uh, you know, kind of along a similar line, do you have any recommendations for maybe residents who are just starting the clinic, like anything to help improve their clinical skills, um, whether that's, um, you know, at the slit lamp or just their thought process? A couple good things I have found beneficial to keep in mind when I'm dealing with a patient. We have talked separately, and I think probably in a different episode, about the actual mechanics of a slit lamp exam, the 20-point exam, how to exa- how to sort of categorize patient complaints, how to approach the red eye. It is very helpful in clinic when you're seeing a lot of patients to have a template in your head as far as what is the information you need to filter out the noise regarding why this patient is here. Otherwise, you go from one patient to another, and if You don't have a template. Everything's going to be a little bit helter-skelter. And a template that I find helpful to use here is to literally say to myself, have this exact words in my own mind, Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. so-and-so is following at how much time? So Dr. Powell is following at three weeks. The next line is for what? In my case, it's uveitis of some sort. So Mr. Mrs. Smith is following at three weeks for uveitis. Then I want to know, Therapy to date has been what? And this is sort of general categories, especially if you, if it's, it's, you may remember it, you may not know the patient, but have a sense of the therapy to date for the patient's condition has been what category of drops, so intraocular pressure lowering drops or steroid eye drops or some kind of laser. And then current therapy, is the patient taking any medications that we need to know about now. I don't necessarily go into all their systemic medications, but I do want to know what eye-related medications the patient is taking. This may be a little more relevant to me because I'm in a medication-heavy field as a uveitis doctor, so a lot of my patients are taking medications, but a lot of you will be in scenarios where patients are taking one eye drop or another or one pill or another. So current therapy is. So again, Mr. So-and-so is following at how much time for what diagnosis? Therapy to date has been what? What type of surgeries? What categories of medications has a patient used? And current therapy is. Then any changes or significant findings in the patient's medical status or history. And then how does the patient feel? And this is where we go into patient notes in terms of vision, appearance, way the eye feels, and any discharge from the eyes. That is a template that I use to sit down before I sort of actually start to examine the patient. Again, you always establish rapport, wash your hands, make sure the patient sees you washing your hands for them. Then you move into the slit lamp exam. General things for clinic, I would, my own personal preference is your appearance matters a lot. The most important thing you can do for a patient in clinic is inspire confidence. And your personal appearance will go a long way towards inspiring confidence. A little bit, I often tell my own residents, my own fellows, a slightly nerdy look is a little bit good. A slightly nerdy edge is good. 
You got, got that it. covered, Ben. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people, don't try to look too handsome. Don't try to look too pretty. And then, but wear something comfortable. So be well-dressed, be clean, make sure your white coat is clean. And it is embarrassing for me and embarrassing for the residents when I tell them, you got to clean that thing. It's dirty, but it's an important thing to have clean pressed clothing, a good looking white coat, and then be able to be comfortable sitting at the, be comfortable being able to sit down and talk to a patient and understand that you're going to generate, they're going to look at this person and think this person looks like a doctor and talks like a doctor. Um, Scrubs, apparently scrubs, surveys have shown that patients can live with scrubs a lot more than they are turned off by 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 dirty clothing. And a lot of times you just can't get out of wearing scrubs into clinic because you're between tasks when you're seeing a patient. Um, and then when you sit at a slit lamp, make sure your slit lamp is comfortable for you. Have patients sit forward on the chair. I tell patients, slide forward to the edge of the chair. You want the patient leaning forward. They only have to lean forward for about two minutes. You want to be straight with a straight spine looking through your scope. So have the patient lean forward into the mic, into the uh, into the chin rest and uh, headrest of the slit lamp. You want to be very straight looking through the slit lamp while you are examining that patient. Well, thanks so much, Doctor Gadio. And again, we'll direct listeners to the separate podcast we have for more detail about Doctor Gadio's approach for red eyes and also his template exam for a great comprehensive anterior segment exam. Taking a little bit of a 90 degree, degree turn now, we were talking a little bit earlier about how kind of murky it is out there for a beginning ophthalmologists just to figure out the world of getting hired after residency or fellowship. And it's something I'll say personally, I should be thinking about more than I am right now. But, uh, I, this is something like we talked about. Not many of us really get much advice for during our training, and yet it's critically important to us. Would you mind sharing with us some of your advice or general tips about how what life looks like after training and how we transition from one to the other? Absolutely. I think um, there's a lot of things which Bear mentioned here. Many people don't realize that talent is hard to find. I do run a private practice, and I can tell you, at all levels of the practice, for all different positions, someone good is hard to find. And there is, your your life as someone running a practice is a nonstop talent search. People are always willing to talk to someone who is a, uh, a motivated, talented person who will uh, devolve positively upon the practice. So understand that practices are interested in you. When you are out there looking for jobs, you have a lot more leverage than you think. Practices want talented physicians. It is always a benefit to know what you want up front. And I would encourage you, if you know there's a certain area that you want to work in, do not necessarily limit yourself to advertised jobs in that area. Plenty of people could use a physician who is motivated but don't want to go through the deal, who don't want to go through the hassle of sort of advertising a position and all that comes with it. If you know that you want to live in Kalamazoo, find out who all the practices in Kalamazoo are and call them. Call them up. I would like to speak to the managing partner. It's Dr. So-and-so. You may get a manager who on the phone and that may be fine, but you can simply tell them, if possible, I'd like to speak to one of the doctors. I am going to be moving to that area and will be looking for jobs in that area. And I'm wondering if your practice is interested. Believe me, you will almost never hear, we are not interested. They'll be like, huh, bright young physician, motivated. 
might want to come with us. This could be a good thing. Remember, why is that? Everybody likes to have motivated partners, and you're going to make money for that practice. Your, your call could be a good way for them to save themselves the hassle. Yeah, it'd be good to add someone if we could get it. You could be that person. So do not be shy about saying, I'm going to be in this area, and I want to, I want to know if you guys are interested. Maybe you are just playing the whole country, looking to see what's available. You don't really, you are not geographically limited and you're just out there looking for jobs. At that point, keep a couple of things in mind. The money, the amount of money, people tend to be like, compare jobs purely based on the guaranteed salary. I think that's folly because the actual earning potential of one job versus another is often not reflected in the guaranteed salary. From the perspective of someone who's hiring a physician, it is in their interest to put their best foot forward. When you look at a practice, consider a couple of things. The most important one you're going to want is, you're going to want to consider is, is this going to be a pleasant place to work two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? Does it look like a place that I can imagine myself being happy? Are these people the type of people I can imagine myself working with? Is the culture of the practice something I can identify with? At that point, evaluate the earning potential of the practice. Am I going to be paid fairly for my work in this practice? The guaranteed salary is often a way of sort of luring people in, um, and the actual earning potential may not be reflected there. Just so you know, the way your basic hiring contract works is you will go to work for a practice. They say, we will pay you a certain amount of money as a guarantee. You will provide work for that practice. On top of that, if the practice collects money that you have earned over a certain amount, you will get a portion of that as well. So let's say a typical, in this neck of the woods, Connecticut's not such a high-paying place, but someone comes to work and I say, okay, you'll make $200,000. I will guarantee that much. So that'll just be your base pay. If this practice collects anywhere between 2.5 and 3 or 3.5 times that, depending on where you are in the country. So if this practice collects, let's say $600,000 from work that you've done, you will get a portion of that as well. That's your basic hiring deal. So your base pay is what's guaranteed. And then the target amount that the practice needs to collect from your work is the amount above which you will start to get a percentage. And a fairly typical one nationwide is sort of a rule of thirds. That's a pretty rough ballpark. So we'll pay you $200,000. And if we collect $600,000, you'll get 30 or 35% of everything over that. The next question is, how likely am I I to be able to do that? So I'm going to put you in a position of making a making base salary, and then pay you on your productivity, am I actually going to make it so you will be productive? As a general rule in the private practice world, it is in their interest to make you as productive as possible. So I always wondered when I was coming out, what is to stop them from sort of paying me a base and then not making it possible for me to make a bonus? As a general rule, they want you to make a bonus. The more money you make, the more money everybody makes. So generally, I think those concerns can be a simple look at economics and business practices can assuage those concerns. A practice that's going to hire you pretty much in the private world will and should make it easy for you to generate as much income as possible. For people looking at academics, this is often, institutions often have the greatest stumbling blocks here because institutions have their hearts in the right place, but 
they will pay you on productivity, but then make it difficult for you to actually collect your 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 fees or put you in a position where you're not really able to uh, to collect a lot of money for them. Be aware of that. It's not that they're trying to cheat you. It's more of a question of just pure competence, and business competence is often a stumbling block for institutional hirers. That's a lot of stuff that's not going to be in BCSC. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Gaudio. It may be worth noting that it is standard for practices to pay your insurance. It's standard for them to pay your malpractice. It is standard for them to pay your, usually they give you like a couple thousand dollars to go to academy. Um, some practices will move you if you ask them to. Um, in general, practices are not, most employment contracts are not, it's not a sort of bazaar where they're going to say, we'll pay you 200 and you say 250. There are industries like that. In medicine, pretty much this is the package. Now, you can ask for modifications to the package, but it's understood that there's a little bit of give and take if you're going to negotiate a contract. I would like more money. Okay, what are you going to, to do? What else are we going to do to the contract to justify paying you more money? There may be ways to say, it is okay to say, is there a way that, that we constructed this contract so I could make more money? One very common way to make more money on a contract is to assume more of the risk. So say, I will take less of a guaranteed base. Suppose they say, we'll give you $200,000 and pay you a third of everything that you collect over $600,000. Many, if you say, I would like to make more money, one way to make more money is to take a little more risk. So say, you don't have to pay me $200,000, pay me $150,000 but give me 35% of everything over $450,000. In other words, you're making a higher percentage because you are assuming the risk. And you can ask them reasonably, do you think I will make more money if I assume more risk? They should be able to tell you yes or no. A a smart hirer, and in general, if you know someone that's better, a smart person who's hiring should be able to tell you that is or isn't in your interest. If someone says to me, I want to make more money, I can usually figure out a way for them to do it and it's usually by them, by that candidate, assuming more of the risk themselves. Again, those are great pearls, and I'm even kind of wondering maybe two more questions about it. Um, one being, I know that a lot of people have different uh, kind of carrots in a deal, like certain support services like Scribes. Are there, I guess, incentives that you think maybe based on your personal style that you think are really that you'd recommend looking out for, or at least gauging how willing a practice is to negotiate with you um, with some of those incentives, I guess. And by incentive, I mostly mean practice assistance, or I mostly mean things that could assist your actual practice, not necessarily the financial incentives, which you've talked about already. In general, things which will improve your ability to practice clinical medicine will also improve your ability to um, to to be paid. Um, so a scribe makes you simply does make you more productive. Uh, access to imaging, you're going to want to always look at what a practice has. If you say, "I'm going to, I'm going to be a glaucoma doctor," clearly you're going to want to be in a practice that has enough capacity to accommodate another glaucoma doctor on top of what they're already doing and someone to do visual fields and neurofiber layer and all the other ancillary studies um, that you will require in order to practice good medicine and to be paid for practicing. Remember, a lot of ophthalmology involves amassing ancillary information above and beyond your exam. This information has value very much clinically and you're reimbursed for that value and that uh, the value of that information is devolves partially to you. You're going to want to make sure that a practice has that. 
A scribe is another example of a way to see, give more care to more people. Assistants, technicians. If you don't have any of these, can you practice medicine? Yes, but you'll see 10, 15 patients a day. If you don't have to do all of these tasks, and I hate to call them menial tasks, but they're tasks that don't require any high level of expertise. If you have people to do them for you, you will be more productive. Um, Those are sometimes in a contract, sometimes not. You can kind of get a flavor of the practice just by asking them, do you plan to give me a scribe? Do you plan to give me assistance? Forward-thinking, business-oriented practices will want to give you whatever it is you need. I mean, the cost of a scribe is trivial compared to how much more that person can, can uh, how much more productive that person can make you. You're going to want to make sure they understand that. At the very least, keep in mind that if you are like, if you are with, if you are talking to someone who says, well, we don't think it's going to, we don't want to spend the money to get another visual field. Well, you will pay off another visual field very, very quickly or pay off the cost of a visual field technician very, very quickly when you are in practice. So do not shy away from making small investments, which will allow you to uh, be more productive. It's a common pitfall that a lot of um, a lot of practices seem to be a little bit penny wise and dollar foolish uh, along those lines. That's something that wouldn't necessarily go in a contract, but that's the type of thing when you evaluate and talk to potential people who are going to be hiring you and eventually become your partners, um, whether or not they are the penny wise and dollar foolish type. Appreciate that so much. My other question: We can take this out if it turns out not to be something great, but. Um, you mentioned also earlier, really making sure that the culture of a practice suits your personality and it's a place you'd want to work. And I think, uh, a lot of what we talked about so far is the, uh, just the upfront negotiations and discussions between yourself and the practice and with the idea that everything's in good faith, of course, but we've all heard like horror stories about how things didn't quite turn out the way you'd expect. And I've even been told before that I should be doing my homework on practices in whatever area I might be interested by even asking pharmaceutical and biomedical representatives just for dirt and stuff. But I always wondered, is there maybe a better way to do it that you might recommend? Or just how would you go into trying to prepare for researching a practice? Um, Because a lot of it, I, I would assume, is word of mouth or to some extent. Information is always valuable, however you can get it. Get it any way you can. By all means, speak to drug reps. By all means, speak to people who have been with the practice. Speak to people who have looked at the practice. Speak to people who have worked in the practice, both ancillary personnel and people who may have been hired before you in the practice and ended up leaving. Keep in mind, you will not have great difficulty identifying people who have an axe to grind. And usually you can pretty much tell apart this person has an axe to grind, so they will have something negative to say. Everybody has something negative to say about everybody else. So filter that out and consider the source. But every bit of information you can get, Google the practice. You can find a lot about a practice's reputation from Google. You can look at the partner's See what the partners have been sued for. Most people have been sued, but if it looks like, yeah, you can kind of tell a a bogus lawsuit or a silly lawsuit or a lawsuit that could happen to anybody from several lawsuits for the same thing. You know, if you see lawsuits from truly egregious stuff that you're thinking, what in the world was he or she thinking? That's very different than, you know, had a bad result and a patient turned around and sued him or her. That's that's sort of, that's just the price you pay for being in practice. Every bit of information you can get is useful to you. You always want to go in to every interview before you meet 
anybody that you're going to meet, either for residency, fellowship, every interview, try to know something about the person before you meet them. Google them up and down, look on Medline to see what they've written, use that information in the interview, let them know you know it, if, if, it's, if it's to your advantage. But yes, information, any way you can get it about a practice will be informative. Consider the source. Don't be, don't just believe everything you read. And if you meet someone who was fired because she was on, he or she was on her phone too much and then turns around and says nasty things, well, maybe, you know, take a well, maybe approach to everything. That's yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's, that's very helpful again. <laughs> um. So then, fellowship maybe? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Sure. so then, for, for our last question for the interview, you know, you have a UVI and external disease fellowship. Can you tell us a little bit about if someone were, to pursue, someone were to pursue a fellowship with you, what your fellowship is like? I wonder if I could say a few words about pursuing fellowship in general. Yeah, please. The, um, I would say to residents, to people, residents who are looking at fellowship, well, knowing what you want up front is always a huge advantage. So if you know where you want to live or knowing where you want to do your fellowship, if you decide, I want to be a fellow in LA and I want to be a fellow in Retina in LA, contact every fellowship as soon as you know. If you're a first-year resident and want to go to LA, contact the fellowship director. Second-year resident, the, the earlier you make contract, the earlier you get on their Get some name recognition on the people in that fellowship, the better. And again, when you're about to talk to anybody, everybody loves to talk about themselves. So if you're talking to a fellowship director, go on Medline, see what he or she has written, pour it out in the interview. I loved your article. Why? Because everybody loves to talk about themselves. It's a little hard fact there. Then... As soon as you, when you go in for an interview, again, use that technique. Make sure you, it'll also help you know what it is you're getting when you, uh, when you apply. My own fellowship. Every fellowship will be sort of, a lot of fellowships are much more um, boilerplate garden variety. Some of them can afford, some of them are highly selective, but a lot of very good ones are not necessarily all that selective. I'm in uveitis and uveitis fellowships don't even fill, don't even fill. So I'm in a, something where people that come are going to be motivated for one reason or another. One of the things that in my line of work in uveitis, many people use the uveitis fellowship as a stepping stone, either because they haven't decided what they want to do or they sort of um, look like they need to buff their resume. That is sort of a reality of uveitis fellowships. And the very good ones will sort of not necessarily be interested in taking people like that. My own fellowship grew out of the fact that I do a lot of teaching surgery and my own practice is a lot of a wide range of surgery for a variety of reasons. I've been able to build a broad surgical practice and residents that trained with me from Yale um, noted that and thought they would like to have that type of practice. Um, so my own practice is appropriate to, my own fellowship is appropriate to a person who wants to learn a lot of, wants a lot of intensive education on the medical and surgical management of uveitis, more intensive than the academic route. And a lot of the private fellowships will be a little more intensive than, than an academic program. The price being obvious, you're not coming from a program that you're going to put on the wall and wow the whole world. My own fellowship is appropriate to a patient who, to a person who doesn't really need, who wants substance heavily, can come out and be very, very confident medically and surgically in what they're doing, um, and isn't really as interested in sort of uh, the image recognition. I'm very well aware a lot of people, a lot of what goes into fellowship is 
uh, image and it is reputation. And when you're a resident, your fellowship, your, your residency is going to be proud to say, this person's going here and this person's going here. They're thinking about big names. And remember, when you're a resident, you are surrounded by people who have cast their lot with academia. They want to see you go into academic, high-profile, prestigious programs, whether or not that's good for you or not. And many of those programs are good, but a lot of them don't take such a intense view and don't take their fellows' education as seriously as other programs. Um, and keep that in mind. There's a lot of image that goes into fellowship selection. Um, some people are okay with that, and some people are looking for heavy substance. Um, I'm, my own fellowship is sort of on the extreme substance end, where my fellows do really a lot of surgery and do really a lot of clinical work. Um, and the price, the, the flip side is that it's not image heavy. So it is very much a uh, substance more than an image-based fellowship. You know, to, to those who may not be familiar with, uh, you know, heavy uveitic surgical practice, Dr. Gaudio doesn't only do, you know, uh, FACO and and um, and cornea surgery, you know, he'll do glaucoma surgery as well. He'll do vitrectomies when it's indicated. Um, you know, he'll do corneal transplants, partial thickness corneal transplants. It's really almost any uh, intraocular surgery you can think of. He... Um, he, he, he does and trains not only his residents, but for sure his fellows very well on how to do. So I think that from our perspective, that was a very unique thing about getting to train with Dr. Gaudio's residents. And if someone were pursuing a fellowship where they want to be able to do a broad variety of intraocular surgery, then this is a place to go. That will bring us to the end of the episode. And thank you again so much, Dr. Gaudio, for letting us pester you one more time, not even just during resi regular residency duties. But uh, Dr. Gaudio really has been a pearl of our program, and we're very happy to share some of his pearls with all of you. So look out for us as we continue to do more Eyes for Ears Chats episodes with uh, topics like this that you don't necessarily get just in residency training, but would be very applicable for all of us starting our practices and careers.